Welcome to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to be answering the question, who are the Garifuna? So this question arose because I recently took a trip uh, down to Belize, and uh, even though I did some of the ultra-cliche neoliberal slash colonial slash touristy things that I guess any any tourist would do when they went on this trip, I actually also uh, attempted to immerse myself in some of the culture, and I happened to choose a place to stay in Belize called uh, Hopkins, and this is a primarily Garifuna community, and when I go places, obviously, and I think this is what most responsible travelers should do, is do a little bit of research on where you're going, who the people are, the customs, language, although in this case it's Belize, so everybody speaks English, all of those types of things that I think a responsible traveler should do, um, and, and of course um, operate as a guest rather than um, um, privileged. But I think that goes without saying, if you're a listener of this channel, you're probably already like that. Anyway, it's in this research period of of trying to figure out like you know like again where I was um who the Garifuna were that I began to um kind of just really fall in love with the culture and the past and the history and and everything they were about it was some of the and I've traveled a decent amount they were some of the most accommodating welcoming hospitable people I've ever met in in the world and so it it kind of forced me to even want to go a little bit further into that past so today we're going to do that we're going to go through some of the research that I uncovered um, some of it uh, most of it actually very good and and awesome some of it not as good when we start talking about what is actually happening to the Garifuna today um, maybe more so in the neighboring country of Honduras than it is Belize but I think that's something that needs to be discussed because this is a, a group of people with a beautiful culture a long rich history and and um, the term now being used for what's taking place, uh, again, in neighboring Honduras is ethnocide. So um, I think we should uh, just dig in. You have anything you want to add, nope. Nick? Never okay. been to Belize. Um, don't know anything about this topic, so super interested to learn. I know a little bit about like the history of Belize and stuff because my family actually has gone there and there many times. We actually were scheduled to go down there months ago but had to cancel because of COVID. So, But yeah, actually one of our friends in college studied there for a a semester also that's where i first heard anything about it yeah 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 another nick another nick okay yep. so um who are the garifuna okay ethnically the garifuna are of mixed african caribbean and indigenous uh groups specifically the kalinago taino uh and that's in their ancestry these groups were mostly caribbean indigenous groups so let's dig into how we have this amazing amalgamation, this mixture of different groups. So let's do a little bit of the history here. So in terms of early colonial history um, in the Caribbean, of course, between 1492 and 1635, um, it is mostly, and I don't think we're going to be shocking our listeners here, it was mostly Spanish colonial uh, possessions, um, starting with Christopher Columbus and going through the Cortezes and 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 so on and so forth, the Pizarros and other conquistadors. Eventually, um, these Spanish colonial possessions that that, that fell under their hands um, forced the indigenous people that survived the uh, immediate attempt at genocide were then forced to pay tribute. Uh, there was, of course, a lot of sexual exploitation uh, among indig uh, again, of conquistadors against indigenous women. There was the forced labor system put into place, known as the encomienda that we have talked about on prior episodes, particularly the one um, uh, about the Zapatistas, um, and of course course, there was some light missionary work. And so to, um, I guess, add a little silver lining, some of these missionaries actually helped the indigenous as well. Uh, big shout out to De Las Casas and Antonio Montesinos, who we've also talked about in past episodes. But for the most part, the missionary process was also exploitative. Okay. Anyway, that's the Spanish in the Caribbean. We all know that story. 
The French, however, also show up um, as early as 1635 to a specific island, and this is the island that's going to be key to everything we talk about historically today, St. Vincent. They arrive in 1635 to St. Vincent, um, basically for essentially competitive colonial reasons. They wanted to uh, encroach on the Spanish colonial process and the wealth that they were making, and France wanted a little bit of piece of wanted a piece of that. They also went for missionary work as well, but most of the French were Jesuits, and they were in competition with Dominicans and Franciscans. So there was a little bit of Catholic on Catholic competition going on there. Anyway, um, the island in question, St. Vincent, was eventually claimed by Cardinal Richelieu and his company of the American islands. So, I mean, right off the bat, we can see like a synthesis here of like the church and business. Like this is a cardinal, but he also has a company of the American islands. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts that you want to chime in? I mean, it links back to like the Virginia company, right? Our conversation on the colonial Americas and so on. So the Taino and the Taino are, are like more like a larger group and there are like sub-linguistic sub and ethnic groups. The Taino are mostly like Caribbean indigenous peoples. Um, after 200 years of experience, basically, by the time the French show up of dealing with Spanish conquistadors and missionaries and so on and so forth, um, they were now relatively effective at resisting forced labor. They were not finding themselves on encomienda systems or whatever the French variant of that would be. They were actually be becoming effective at resistance movements. They did not want to force grow sugar or cacao. Um, so in response, the king of France, King Louis XIII at this time, not one of the more famous Louis, but still a Louis, um, turned to Africa and what would be called the Le Traite des Nours. And, and wow, my French was Nours, <laughs> Nours. Can you spit it out for me? You, is your French any better? Oh, God, okay. no. Russian and French, man. Those oh are two God, I cannot I just, do. I can't. It's not rolling off the tongue. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, he, King Louis turned to the, uh, Africa for slaves. That's, that's essentially what I'm trying to spit out here. All right. In 1660, um, an indigenous rebellion led to essentially a French victory further consolidating their power. So the Taino did resist a little bit in 1660. They did lose that rebellion, and the French were further able to consolidate power on St. Vincent. Now, in terms of like the actual origins of the groups that we want to talk about, most notably the Garofuna, um, there are varied accounts. So I'm going to go with the three top theories of their origination. And they're not super long, but it's important for us to understand that through my research, that, and, and this research includes um, some firsthand accounts and interviews and stuff that unfortunately I did not think to record at the time, but I am going to go back and do some of that um, in the future. Anyway, this includes firsthand accounts, includes academic accounts, it includes, you know, obviously, you know, looking at various databases online and whatever. These are the three top theories as to how the Garifuna came into being based on what we just discussed regarding colonialism. The first theory, and one of the most accepted, is that West African slave ships were wrecked off the island of St. Vincent in either 1635 or 1675. And again, in this case, Spanish, British, and uh, French and British accounts all kind of have two different dates in there. One of the boats in question, ooh, there's also Dutch accounts as well, sorry. One of the accounts calls the wrecked ship in question, one of the ships, the Palmyra, or the Palmyra. The story goes that between 2,500 and 5,000 survivors of these shipwrecks swam to shores and mixed with other Maroons um, escaping colonial enslavement and mixed with the indigenous Kalinago Taino um, to basically make what would become the Garifuna culture, which again is this rich synthesis of African and indigenous or, or American Indian culture. It is this like combination. Um, okay. 
Some Kalinago ended up um, re-enslaving some of the uh, Maroons that had escaped the West African slave trips, some saved slave ships. Some ended up helping, uh, and some of the Maroons... <clears throat> And Africans created rebellious factions together. Accounts vary. So if you look at some of the accounts that are trying to paint a picture of, of racial superiority, which was quite frequent, uh, especially at that time, uh, especially by the Spanish and French, who uh, the Spanish, of course, had that encomienda system where at the very bottom were people of pure African culture and just above them were people of indigenous culture. So they, they had even tiered both groups that they had oppressed. So some of them, you could see the favoritism there where they would argue that it was the Native American that re-enslaved some of the African slaves, but other accounts that were looking at more, the French accounts actually seem to indicate that that was not the case, that the Africans and the indigenous people were working together. And of course, that seems to be the more widely accepted researched account now is that these groups work together, intermarried, and of course you have the birth of Garifuna. Okay, the second theory in question, so that's the first theory. You have, actually, you have anything on the first theory? Nope. Okay, the second theory and this is not as widely accepted, but I want to include it because it's such a cool concept to me, is that African arrival in the Caribbean, or i.e. the New World, actually predates European contact. So, specifically the historian Ivan Van Sertima, um, in his work, They Came Before Columbus, The African Presence in Early America, uh, written in 1976, contends that seafaring African royalty were the first foreigners to make contact with the indigenous of the so-called New World. He presents evidence from 11 different disciplines, including historical documents, botany, linguistics, anthropology, and sculpture. That quote comes from GarifunaResearch.com. It's just a quick place I went to check to, to get a little bit more information on this theory. Anyway, any thoughts on that, on this this theory by Ivan uh, Ivan Vencertima that, that Africans actually predate Europeans in the New World? No, I mean, I've heard this theory before, not related specifically to the Garifuna, but this idea that, like, Egyptians, as an example, could have crossed the ocean on ships that they had crafted, etc. And we all know that the Vikings made it before Columbus, so it's definitely not impossible. Well, and even before that, the one that everyone forgets are the Polynesian wayfarers that mm -hmm. actually are the, the original colonizers of Central and South America. And they did this about ten to 15,000 years before, like ten to 15,000 years before the Europeans. And that's, that's where a lot of the indigenous culture comes from is these right. Polynesian wayfarers. So it's definitely possible. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that many of the African kingdoms, uh, before we get to the Renaissance, were exponentially more advanced than Europeans in so many different ways, in astronomy, in navigation, um, in, in wealth. I mean, so we mm -hmm. definitely know that that's... That was certainly possible. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. Okay. The third theory are that the Garif, and this is becoming more and more accepted, is that the Garifuna are a collection of maroons and escaped slaves from an assortment of various Caribbean holdings, whether they be French holdings or Spanish holdings or British holdings or Dutch holdings, that these were all essentially like either, again, maroons or runaway slaves that had slowly found their way to St. Vincent, this enclave of freedom that we'll talk about here in just a second. These individuals, at least ethnically speaking, would be originally made up from the modern-day like nation-states, if you're looking on a map right now, which you're probably not, you're just listening to our podcast. But if you were, modern-day nation-states of like Nigeria, Ghana, but also there were some other Carib slave colonies like Grenada and St. Lucia, Lucia um, where these individuals' um, roots also might also in include, excuse me, I, need, I misspoke there. These Maroons from Grenada and St. Lucia could also trace their roots back to other places in Africa, Senegal, the Congo, and Angola, um, and most prominently from ethnic groups of Yoruba, 
Ibo and Ashanti. Um, so, I mean, any commentary there? No. Okay. Euro- European reports, though, reveal that as early as 1546, um, Black Caribs and Africans were, or excuse me, Red Caribs and Africans were working together. And this source comes to us from Paul Chris Johnson in 2007 and some of the research he's done. The reason I mention this, and you're going to hear me now kind of um, interchange the word Garifuna with Carib, because a lot of people also do that in their research. They call them Carib. The Carib would be the indigenous people of the, uh, of the Caribbean. Um, and they eventually separated Europeans when they would talk about them, separated them into Red Carib, i.e. pure indigenous, and Black Carib, these individuals that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So just in case you're wondering. Anyway, it's interesting to note, though, that if this is the case, if there were reports of entire groups of Caribs, i.e. Taino, and um, Africans working together as early as 1546, that shipwreck story, the most accepted story, um, that's a hole. That's a massive hole in that story. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Um, we also have a report from 1612 by a uh, conquistador named Sancho de Alquiza. He also cites at least 2,000, and in, again, this is his, his words, not mine, black caribs on um, the islands, particularly the island of St. Vincent. So he says they're there before that um, shipwreck that we just talked about. There is controversy among all of these reports, just like there was in the first report. Was there intermingling of all of these oppressed peace, uh, oppressed Ugh. Was the intermingling of all of the oppressed peoples like peaceful? Was it violent? Was it consensual? Was it egalitarian? Was it exploitative? Exploitative? All of the accounts seem to deviate on these topics. So again, if you're reading more French sources, they tend to indicate that the indigenous and the Africans kind of got along very well. If you're reading more Spanish sources, it was more exploitation on the Native Americans part. If you are reading more British sources, which we're about to get to because they kind of show up a little bit later in the game, it's even worse. They are even more, to be blunt, racist against those of African ancestry. So we'll be talking about that here in just a second. The historians in question, the most famous would be... um, 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 the British Sir William Young. Uh, There's also Robert Anderson, the aforementioned Ivan Van Sertima, Bernard Marshall, R.J., uh, R.G., Andrade Colo, and Carlos uh, Aguadello. Those of you that are into research, those would be names that you would want to look up to dig a little bit heavier into this controversy of how the Garifuna came into being. Regardless, what we see here is a unique culture developed that existed independently and in defiance of the British, Spanish, and Dutch, and even French exploitative colonial systems. They also developed, and they were world-renowned at this point, a fierce fighting force to resist, eventually receiving um, neutral island status among all the colonial powers for nearly a century. So I must stress this. St. Vincent was basically one of the only free Caribbean islands during the peak of the colonial period where slavery was not a thing. And it was run by indigenous peoples and African peoples, ultimately them mixing together to form what would become the Garifuna. I mean, any commentary? Yeah, on, like, I mean, this- it's awesome that it's important to point out that they were quote-unquote, granted this status by all the colonial powers because they were so good at resisting. Yeah, they were so good, like I said, and, and, and they have this rich history. And like I said, I think it's important to, like, implement this into even traditional like histories of like the colonial process in the americas this is agency and i think a lot of times when we talk about slavery and things along those lines we leave out the stories of resistance successful resistance um and even though we should be learning about all of the horrors of slavery and oppression that took place in the past by leaving out the stories of agency we make those people of the past seem like almost weaker or complacent Mm -hmm. passive Yeah, yeah whereas this is like clear evidence of an island that maintained its autonomy and freedom 
amid, like, again, the peak of the transatlantic slave trade and the colonialism in North America. Like, this is impressive. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, okay. So, okay, regardless of their origin, the notion of St. Vincent as this free island in the Caribbean gained prominence throughout the 1700s. Their identity would be forged through the synthesis of multiple African and Carib, i.e. indigenous, ethnic, and cultural parts, and all existed in direct defiance to the threat of falling prey to slave-based colonizers. So, um, anything before we get into, like, the British here? Yeah, super interesting. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the British. Of course, um, this channel's least favorite colonizers, as you guys have uh, probably uh, learned over time. favorites. Yeah, like they're all, they all, they all suck, but some suck a little worse. And the English are the worst. Uh, Okay. Under England for good. Uh, By 1763, uh, St. Vincent fell under um, English colonial rule. And the reason it did is because of a very famous treaty we've talked about in our Myth is America series in relation to the United States. It's the 1763 Treaty of Paris. And this is essentially the treaty that guaranteed uh, that the British had defeated the French in the Seven Years' War, or in North America, we call it the French and Indian War. But essentially, it is this like guarantee. And of course, this is the war that ends up nearly bankrupt both England and France, and they both start to tax a lot, and that leads to a couple of revolutions, as we all know. But in terms of what it means for the Caribbean, it means that St. Vincent now falls under British um, control. This leads to, very shortly after, six years later, what would be called the War of the Caribbean. And this war lasts between 1769 and 1797. It's actually two wars, but for simplicity's sake, I'm making the executive decision to include them in basically one long war. Because there's not really a break, uh, especially when we're talking about a colonial process. So much of the resistance on St. Vincent um, and other uh, Carib islands would be organized by a Garifuna named Joseph Chatoyer. Uh, or Satouye. Uh, I can, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but regardless, that's who we're going to be talking about. He is uh, the Carib that successfully defeated a military expedition um, to essentially their side of St. Vincent, and later he refused to sell um, his side of the island um, in the British and forced them to sign a treaty in 1773, recognizing that at least part of the island would remain independent in the hands of the Garifuna. That's impressive. Yeah, that's dope. So anyway, um, this is about the time that the United States War for Independence breaks out, and I must stress that obviously takes some of the attention away from the Caribbean islands by the British military. They obviously begin to to orient themselves a little bit further north. This further emboldened um, the Garifuna or the Black Caribs to fight the British even harder. And because of their prior connections to the French and the French like recognizing them as a neutral island and France just wanting to do anything it can to like um, um, stick it to the British, the French begin helping them. So they form an alliance. So the Black Carib, i.e. the Garifuna, Garifuna, form an alliance with the French Hmm. during the American War for Independence. So these connections are super interesting for historians because, again, it's like you, you... you don't realize all these other things are going on since all, you know, in the United States, we're just like, oh, there's a war against taxation without representation. And like, like we don't understand like the international yeah, connections, global, for yeah, sure. like the international connections that are taking place. So anyway, this is important. The U.S. War for Independence leads to further French help in St. Vincent against the British. The French, of course, as I had just mentioned, also break out into revolution and their revolutionary ideals, of course, we all know, make their way to the Caribbean, most um, prominently in Saint-Domingue, which was uh, eventually going to achieve its independence as Haiti. But that's not the only island where some of these French revolutionary ideals were spread. 
the Black Caribs of St. Vincent saw common cause with the Haitian Maroons that were successful in overthrowing their masters and um, um, relieving the, their island of colonialism altogether. The French also saw an opportunity uh, with helping these Black Caribs to win back lost territory and export their revolutionary ideals all over the world. We know they wanted to export them to Europe, but they also wanted to export them all over the world. And I cannot stress this enough, the National Convention saw in this an opportunity to spread the idea of abolition. We don't do a lot of like, we love European colonialism, but in this case, the French trying to spread abolition to the new world is actually a pretty powerful, powerful sentiment. Any thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Nope. Okay, I mean, the Jacobin back in, in France, Victor Hughes, um, he was actually sent by the National Convention itself to the, Carab to the Caribbean to free slaves. So the National Convention sends this dude, Victor Hughes, to the Caribbean to either former French colonies or still Spanish and English colonies to free slaves. Hmm. That's powerful. Okay, uh, we even have like a primary source from this. Hughes writing to the aforementioned uh, Joseph, Joseph Chateauer, um, he says in his own words, the commissioners delegated by the National Convention to the Windward Islands, to General Chateauer, chief of a free nation, free nation, the French nation, in combating with despotism is allied to all free people. It desires nothing but liberty. It has always sustained the Caribs against the vile attempts of the English. The time has arrived when the ancient friendship between the French people and the Caribs ought to be renewed. They should exterminate their common enemy, the English. We swear friendship and assistance in the name of the French nation to you and your comrades. Attack! Exterminate all the English in St. Vincent, but give means to the French to second you. So this source comes to us from Curtis Jacobs, The Brigands' War in St. Vincent, The View from the French Records. But I think it's actually a pretty powerful um, a pretty powerful source. The one word, obviously, as Mr. Peace, Love, and Happiness that I am, that I do take a little bit of umbrage, is the word exterminate. Any thoughts on that? Because we... If we're going to call it out, and we have called it out over and over again when either like architects of the United States or British colonizers use this when they are talking about indigenous people, we probably should call it out when this French guy is talking about the British. Any thoughts mm -hmm. on the use of the word exterminate there? No, I mean, I agree. Like what you said, it has to go both ways if we're going to, uh, I was going to say if we're going to be fair and balanced, but let's be honest, we're not fair <laughs> yeah. and balanced ever. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that extermination of a group of people is, we should all probably agree, is bad, right? Regardless of what those people are doing or who they are, we shouldn't right. be exterminating. Now, in this case, I think he means get them off the island, which right. is rightfully yours. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the other conversations we have, it is where the person is trying to take something that was not theirs. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, in 1795, uh, a joint Carib and French force led by Chateau, who is by this time actually now also considered a French general. So this Garifuna would eventually become a French general, and his brother Duval marched across the island, taking all in their path until eventually being forced uh, uh, to surround um, the main city on St. Vincent, which is called Kingston. A counter force would be sent at night clandestinely, um, and it basically was able to break the siege. It's during this um, counterattack by the governor um, that Chateauer died, and he died on, uh, what is it, Dorsetshire Hill. You don't get much more British than that name. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, his death, like Joseph Chateau's death, um, kind of spelled the beginning of the end of this resistance um, to the British on St. Vincent. 
A year of fighting, however, would be carried on by the Frenchman Victor Hughes um, and all of the recently freed slaves that he had now fighting for him, as well as like formalized French soldiers. And what they would tend to do, uh, just like in the French and Indian War, was use like guerrilla tactics to attack the British, which were wildly effective. Unfortunately, in June of 1796, 4,000 British soldiers showed up and they were led by a man named Ralph Abercrombie. And essentially they end the war um, through kind of a scorched earth attack on Hughes and his forces. Um, if any of you want to know a little bit more about this, uh, these battles, these very specific battles um, from the British account, um, there is an historical account of the island of St. Vincent written in 1831 by Charles Shepard. So anyway, always got to shout out my sources. Okay, after the war... Um, there would be some debate as to what the fate of St. Vincent would be. Again, originally colonized by the Spanish, a little bit the French, they couldn't bring it under control. Um, African um, for African uh, maroons show up. I almost said slaves, but they never were enslaved. Regardless of which story we go to, these were never slaves. Right. Africans show up, mix with the indigenous culture, and it ends up being a free and neutral island for the better part of a century. And now, of course, what's going to happen now that the British are calling the shots? Again, as we've already discussed numerous times, it's never good when the British are calling the shots. So we have an interesting quote here that comes from Sir William Young um, in 1795. Um, this is what he had to say. And he's the one that, in case you're wondering, Sir William Young is the one that is recording all of this. He says, the late insurrection of the Black Caribs in the island of St. Vincent hath much drawn the public attention to a consideration of the conduct and of the claims of those people. The Caribs have regarded by some persons in Great Britain as an independent nation, the original and rightful possessors of the island of St. Vincent's, and inflamed by resentment to acts which, however cruel, may bear the name of retaliation. The Caribs, it is content by others, had no original right in the soil of the country, but that that right was directly conferred from the British crown, under which they swore allegiance and have received constant protection and repeated favor by our British fellow subjects in St. Vincent's. It is represented that the late attack upon them by the Caribs was wholly unprovoked and that in, in, in its operation, cruelty and perfidy were so blended that no future confidence can subsist and that the sole alternative remains of themselves or of the Caribs being removed off the face of the island. So I like that quote because it paints at least three different like frames of thinking, at least in British terms going on, that the Caribs were in the right, that we're actually in the wrong. And the fact that the British even have a small portion of the population willing to admit that is actually pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. The second is that nothing the Caribs say is, is correct. They also are technically, were technically colonizers and they have no right or claim to that land that is any more legitimate than ours and we even signed an agreement with them. And then the third is that the people, and this is mostly from the people that are living on St. Vincent, that somebody's got to go. It's either us or them. Mm -hmm. So, um, any thoughts? Oh yeah, that's, that's an interesting source. Okay. Ultimately, in April of 1797, over 5,000 Carib were shipped by, Brit by the British ships to a deserted Honduran Bay island of Roatan, um, then eventually to a smaller island called Balaco. And during this whole disgusting process of basically forcefully removing um, the Garifuna from St. Vincent, eventually to a couple of different smaller islands um, near Honduras, only 2,500 survive, so half die on this journey. And the journey's not super long, right? It's all in the Caribbean, but they are treated so poorly that only half survive this initial exile. Um, further, these islands that they're exiled on for a shorter period of time are just completely non-productive. Just like with any indigenous movement, or movement of indigenous people by the colonizer, the U.S. reservation system, they move them to like the worst places so mm -hmm. because they want to access the resources underneath. So right. this is what happens here. 
Eventually, though, this is important. They, on these horrific islands that they are now like basically stranded on with no natural resources, they, they swim to shore. Um, and both the primary accounts as well as the interview accounts that I took while I was down in Belize, they basically account for this, that they flat out just swam to shore and hmm. decided that they would make their way um, to the mainland, to mainland Central America, and they did it. Um, when they get there, ironically, they decide uh, that they are going to ally with the Spanish, who were their former oppressors, but it must be stressed that the French are no longer an option. You're in Central America. This is Spanish territory. Mm -hmm. Like, this is... This is who you're going to have to work with. Um, and Spain's okay working with them now because they also see this as a way to hurt the British, um, just like always. So even allied with the crown against the um, – they even allied with the crown. So um, excuse me. I should be very clear. They even allied with the Spanish crown during the various wars for independence in Central America. Um, this is important because them making this choice, the Garifuna making this choice will lead to future persecution. The reason this will lead to future persecution is because it was the Spanish crown that granted them autonomy when they made it to basically what would be modern day Honduras, not the Creoles population that was now rebelling against the Spanish crown. So during the wars for independence that would be fought basically in like Mexico and South America and so on and so forth. This would be a predominantly mestizos or Creoles like resistance against against like the Spanish crown. The Garifuna had no vested stake in independence because it was the Spanish crown that had legitimized their right to freedom. So they allied with the Spanish crown. Hmm. So it's important because those countries are, surprise, surprise, going to win their independence in 1821 through basically 1836 in these various wars. When they do win their independence, they are going to use the fact that the Garifuna allied themselves with the crown as a reason to persecute them. Um, aside from, of course, blatant racism as well, but we'll get to that later. Any thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. That Yeah, I mean, they, you know, you make your choices of who to align to and you don't know what the future repercussions are going to be, you know. Yeah, they remained highly marginalized in Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua like through this day, but we will be getting to that shortly. This is actually the official beginning of the name of Garifuna. So even though I've kind of been using Garifuna and Black Carib uh, interchangeably, probably much to a linguist's um, chagrin, this is where the official name Garifuna comes into being, is the, uh, the arrival on the mainland in um, Honduras and, 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 and Belize and so on and so forth. And again, the word itself comes from like kind of just an evolved version of Kalinago. So, All so right. like maybe you'll answer this one later on. But if someone considers themselves that, do they trace their ancestry to those that swam yes. to the mainland first? All trace their ancestry to the ones that swam to the mainland. Hmm. Now, some did stay in the Caribbean. Um, but if you live in Honduras or Belize, which are the two like main main centers of Garifuna culture, then you consider yourself a direct descendant of these uh, individuals that swam. Nice. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So this is also where linguistic development would take place. What eventually becomes the Garifuna language really evolves at this point. It is an Arawakan language, so a Native American language with then, of course, different parts of everything we've talked about. There's French mm -hmm. in there, there's English in there, there's Dutch in there, there's Spanish in there, and then, of course, there are a new number of different African dialects as well, like Yoruba and so on and so forth. So anyway, like Garifuna becomes its own standalone language. Does it still exist? Yes. <laughs> Even though, like, when you go there, especially in Honduras, the Garifunas speak some Spanish. You Like, they have to be able to speak Spanish. And in Belize, they speak English. They still also, among each other, will speak Garifuna. Hmm. So. 
Okay. After uh, Mexican independence and then the subsequent smaller, like, fractional independence movements of the smaller Central American nations in the 1830s. So Mexico gets its independence first, and then other countries separate from Mexico, like Honduras and and and, and, and um, Nicaragua and so on and so forth, Guatemala. Um, okay, they separate later. These smaller nation states, as they were de- developing their own identity and autonomy, would begin a series of charges of treason against the Guerrafuna because of them aiding the Spanish crown. And these would be formalized charges of treason, forcing a further diaspora throughout the region. Um, Real quickly, what's a diaspora, Nick? Movement, large movement of people. Okay. Um, Usually fleeing or being forced out of somewhere, like the most famous diasporas usually are related to like like, uh, Semites and so on and so forth, but yeah. Okay. Ultimately, the key settlement um, for Belizean Garifuna would be uh, created through a diaspora. It is called Dangriga. It is still um, the the Garifuna capital of Belize to this day. It's not a super huge city. I don't know. I want to say nine to 12,000 people, but it's a big city for the region. Um, no cities in Belize are super massive at this point. But uh, yeah, Dangriga, um, that would be the main like hub of Garifuna culture in Belize. And it would prove to be a wildly important safe haven. Um, it's also, as uh, more and more of these diasporas take place, that further and further um, implementation of oppression would take hold in certain Central American countries. And in this case, we're going to call out Honduras. We're going to be calling out Honduras a lot today. Um, this is under the dictator uh, Tiburcio Carias. He caused another smaller diaspora to Belize in 1937, where 22 Garifuna men in the community of San Juan were forced to dig their own graves and executed following false charges of treason. The rest of the community was able to escape um, from San Juan, Honduras, and establish a second safe haven in Belize. So they flee to Belize, and they established the settlement of Hopkins. And that's where I spent um, my time in Belize. So um, it's interesting. That's the main reason I wanted to include it. It's still a little bit more closer to home for me. But anyway, um, yeah, so Hopkins and Dangriga are the two main basically safe haven settlements of Garifuna culture in Belize. And because of current day attacks that we're going to talk about in Honduras against Garifuna, they might be the most important safe havens um, in the Americas for Garifuna culture. And this is they were basically established through people fleeing charges of treason after the Central American Wars for Independence. Okay. Now, the third place that uh, Garifuna would flee to during persecution uh, under Central American dictators um, was the United States. The United States actually has a uh, the second largest Garifuna population in the world. It actually has a larger Garifuna population than Belize itself. So Honduras has the most, then United States, then Belize. Hmm. Maybe, How many? Do you have that number? I actually don't have that number. Hmm. Maybe you can look it up real fast. I, okay. it's, oh, it's in the hundreds of thousands. I want to say maybe 100 to 200,000. But yeah, hmm. if you want to look it up for me real fast. The United States has a large Garifuna um, population, many living um, on the East Coast, New York City and stuff. Okay. Throughout the 20th century, the safe... So this is from 2011, yeah. but it says 200,000. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was right around there. Okay. Through the 20th century, the safety of Belize, then still a like a British colony, Belize actually stays a British colony for a very long time, um, allowed the Garifuna to further cultivate their rich culture and maintain their language. So during the 20th century, once we get through like kind of like the whole colonization, development of language, development of a rich culture, what's what's life like? What's life like in the uh, the you know, 
after the world wars and during the industrial eras and stuff like that. Essentially, in terms of making a living, most of the Garifuna um, engaged in, in farming, and it remained paramount until just after World War II. Um, but the Cold War and eventually the onslaught of neoliberalism, which we'll be talking about here in just a moment, led to much of their land in Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, and even parts of Belize, which was technically the safest place for them to be, would eventually be seized by international fruit companies. Um, any commentary there? They seem to make an appearance quite often in our discussions about Central American history. Yeah, when we talked about Cuba, right? It was yeah. the United Fruit Company, I think, if I remember correctly, which then became well, it's, it seized Chiquita. Guatemala. Yeah, yeah, it seized Guatemala, and that's where Che got pissed. Yeah, all yeah. that. So, okay. I mean, I think he was probably pissed before that, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> in regions where companies found land not profitable enough... Racial and cultural favoritism in the 20th century dictated it was sold to mestizos rather than Garifuna. So especially in Honduras and Nicaragua, basically, if, if, if a company had basically seized this land or quote-unquote bought it, but I call it seized because you're seizing land using a resource that, that these cultures don't even use, right? Like if you're Mayan, if you're Mayan, you're not using you know, U.S. dollars to legitimize your claims over land. Like that's mm -hmm. not a thing. You're seizing land. Anyway, yeah. back to the story. If they found the land not profitable, they would resell it to locals, but they would always sell it to mestizos and not Garifuda. Um, why do you think they did that? Of course, this, we can trace this back to the racism of the encomienda system, mm -hmm. that they were racist against to be blunt blacks, um, and they preferred the mestizos to the blacks. So anyway. All right. In regions um, where there was um, opportunity for um, fishing exports, fishing became a way that many of the Garifuna began to make a living. Fishing e exports presented a lot of small opportunities. You're never going to get we wealthy without like some massive like fishing like enterprise out there, like big trawlers and things along those lines. They would obviously go out with just their own little boats. They knew the they knew the Caribbean very well, and they were always wildly successful. But you can only bring back so many fish, so it's more like subsistence fishing for lack of a better term like mm -hmm. you you're going to eat it and then what little you have left you'll take to market and sell for a small profit and of course exchange that for other things that you need but but it was never going to be big business for the garifuna okay they also worked, many of the Garifuna worked uh, as paid labor under the British mahogany trade, um, and some even worked in neighboring banana republics under exploitative U.S. corporate watch. So many would end up like going back to Guatemala to basically work as wage laborers, poorly treated and poorly paid wage laborers under like the United Fruit Company. The other one I want to bring up, though, is England stayed in Belize for so long um, as a colonizer um, for both political and economic reasons. And the economic reason is mahogany. Like, obviously, Belize is both beautiful beaches and rich rainforest, and there was a lot of mahogany there. So definitely a big part of this. In terms of, like, how the Garifuna operated in terms of, like, their culture and how that worked with um, their British, quote-unquote, overlords, there were some issues, and some of the issues were actually attached to um, gender equity, believe it or not. Um, and we've talked about this before when we talked about like the Iroquois League of Peace and Power and the colonial process on how colonization actually complicated relationships between men and women um, because of the patriarchal ways that the Europeans see the world. Well, this actually ends up still being a problem as of the 20th century when we're talking about the Garifuna. The Garifuna, culturally speaking, and, and we could tie this both to their African as well as their indigenous origins, are matrilocal. They're not matrilineal, which was what I would call the Iroquois and some of the other um, Atlantic Coast Native Americans that we talked about um, in other other episodes, but they are matrilocal and traditionally hold women decision makers in high regard. 
But due to the type of labor always desired by the colonizers over centuries, i.e. like fishing and logging and so on and so forth, men slowly but surely became the main like earners and they were able to slowly um, use that to garner at least a little bit more economic control of the Garifuna communities. So I don't want to sit here and insinuate that they are wildly patriarchal now, but it was, you could definitely see a shift in um, the power dynamic take place because of the colonizer in this case. Simply put, women's income prospects are lower, and when you're in a capitalist economy and you're being forced into this capitalist economy essentially against your will because you're under the British still as, as of the 20th century, income, wealth is power. And if women cannot earn their own wealth the way that men could because the British would not hire women um, for the mahogany trade— or the United Fruit Company would not hire women, um, then this is what happens. Any commentary there? We talked about that, I think, in one of our episodes, too. The same thing happened with the indigenous peoples in North America. Like, the gender dynamics in many ways shifted their culture from, like, matrilineal to patriarchal. First off, we talked about the power of negotiation, right, and how the colonizers would only ever negotiate with the men. So this gave them political power this relationship with the colonizers. But then there, just like that, is the economic factor where once capitalism starts to proliferate, like you just said, right, the prospect for women's labor is much lower than it is for men. So men gain certain economic power and become reliant on the wages of, sorry, the women become reliant on the wages of the men. And that reliant is, Mm -hmm. that reliance becomes the key that really changes that gender dynamic for sure. Absolutely. Uh, For example, in 2013, the World Economic Forum ranked Belize 101st out of 135 countries in global gender gap report. Most of the time when I do these numbers, I'm doing it to show that other places are a little bit more advanced than where we live, you know, Um, but not in this case. Uh, Belize is struggling in that regard. Um, It must also be uh, stated that 48.3% of women in Belize participate in the workforce compared to 81.8% of men. And that, that data, again, comes from um, the World Economic Forum. Hmm. It's, it's, it's not even close. I mean, so um, that kind of just verifies what we're talking about. Now, we're going to focus heavily on Belizean independence here for just a second. I'll do it super fast just so we can kind of keep get back into the Garifuna because Belize is more than just the Garifuna, and the Garifuna are more than just Belize, but we'll talk about that in just a second. Dating back to the 1940s, in terms of Belize is concerned, uh, a po- political party was formed. It was called the People's United Party, or just the PUP, and they still are a major player in Belizean politics to this day. They made constitutional reforms, which eventually led to universal suffrage in 1954. And once universal suffrage was allowed in Belize, there would be the emergence of a pro-independence activist named George Cato Price. And uh, Britain eventually um, would grant Belize its self-government autonomy in 1964. Not its full-blown independence. The British would still be there to advise, but it gives them their own self-government in 1964 under Price. Um, At that time, it wasn't called Belize. It was called British Honduras, but regardless, um, it happens in 1964. Then, on June 1st of 1973, British Honduras was officially renamed to Belize. Um, so those are two important dates you have back when in 1964, when they get their own self-government and then in 1973, when they changed their name from British Honduras to Belize independence though, full-blown independence was hampered, not necessarily in this case by British greed for once, but by Guatemalan greed. 
So um, for the longest time, Guatemala had claimed that Belize was actually theirs. Like the whole, what we now call Belize was technically supposed to be part of Guatemala. That, that was an important claim. And England did not want to grant Belize its independence in 1973 for fear that Guatemala would actually just seize it. Um, so that's why the British stuck around until 1981. They officially grant Belize its independence on November, excuse me, September 21st of 1981. Britain kept 1,500 British troops in Belize, however, to deter a Guatemalan invasion. Um, and by 1990, the British uh, formally removed most of their soldiers um, and an entire contingent of the Royal Air Force, the RAF that was there. I think it was like a Harrier company, like whatever, the jump jets. We had a bunch of Harriers based there. They got rid of those. Anyway, they do leave behind a small military training unit to help assist with the construction of what is known as the Belize Defense Force, which is still, of course, going strong today. Anyway, it's important for us to talk about Belizean independence, so that we can talk about what that means for the Garifuna now here in the 21st century. So, okay, in Belize, there are six communities um, that basically lead the perseverance of the Garifuna culture, the language, and um, their traditions. Their traditions of resistance and defiance and freedom and autonomy. Everything that we can trace back to what I was talking about, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes ago in St. Vincent. This very proud, important culture, this synthesis of African and Caribbean um, and indigenous culture. Um, and these six communities in Belize are like the lead in the lead of preserving that for like the world. Like it, they will, we'll get to just how that's recognized in just a second. On November 19th, um, even a national holiday in Belize was called, was named and it's called settlement day, recognizing the day that the boats and the swimmers essentially landed on the coast of Central America from their Island exile. So that is a very important day. Um, for those that are looking for a reason to travel to this beautiful place, um, in November, if you go, you're going to see um, uh, some amazing celebrations, November of every year, um, because of Settlement Day. Okay, what happens on this day? They do basically reenactments of them landing on the beach, again, whether um, by swimming or by boats. Um, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of food, and the most important part that people associate to Garifuna culture, music, and specifically a music called punta. Um, it is a uniquely Garifun, Garifunian, Garifunan, Garifunan, it's a uniquely Garifuna music. Garifunan? Yeah, Garifunan, I, I, I can't believe I did, yeah, okay, anyway. It is associated with rhythmic Afro-Caribbean style drumming and an associated dance style. Basically, dancers are like kind of moving their hips in circular motion. We actually have a clip of me attempting this. We will not be posting that. So it is, it's, it's horrible. Um, and, and I have the rhythm of, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I have the rhythm of a uh, half Iranian white guy. I don't know. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. Anyway, there are two drums that are usually associated with the punta, the primero, which is the tenor drum, and the segunda, which is the bass drum. There's also like modern versions of punta that became really popular in like the 80s and 90s. It's called punta rock. It's actually one of the most pro prominent forms of music throughout Central America now. So even like countries that are struggling to recognize like the Garifuna autonomy and rights to land and so on and so forth, they love their music. And they like punta rock is like one of the most uh, prominent forms of, of music in Central America. There's also a little bit of uh, reggae, reggaeton as well, um, mixed with um, some Spanish for like Honduras and Guatemalan uh, uh, audiences, um, which is a little bit more like globally popular. But it also influenced in Belize even the use of some like Spanish words in their punta. So you can kind of see like a reflexive relationship in the development of this music. Belize, by the way, it's only English speaking, so you're not going to see a lot of like Spanish there. Um, 
I mean, I guess it's not only English speaking, but that is the main language. There's still Spanish spoken there, but usually when you're there, it's, it's, it's mostly English. So the fact that like some of this music would be taken from Belize to Honduras, Guatemala, turned into something slightly different and then brought back to Belize, that's kind of the, the moral of the story I'm going for here. Anyway, um, Punta lyrics themselves specifically are mostly still spoken in either Garifuna or Creole. And when I say Creole, I don't mean like Louisiana Creole. I mean like the Creole of Belize. And so the Creole of Belize is another complicated history I don't have time to get into today because I'm focusing on the Garifuna. But long story short, the Creole are also of African heritage, but of a different um, uh, line. To be blunt, their line were enslaved and were laborers and did eventually um, free themselves from slavery or were freed by the powers that be. So there is a little bit of an interesting dynamic there between um, Garifuna, who see themselves as like never oppressed or, and always free and defiant, and Creoles who were at one point enslaved. So, and again, it's an interesting dynamic that I actually feel I don't have the research um, yet to comment on uh, that different dynamic there, but it is it does exist, even in Belize. Okay. Music was not only the key for maintenance of culture, um, but of course, tourism and even activism. Um, so it's important that activism would be included here, especially out of the various um, Belizean Garifuna communities. Most of their activism, since Belize does a okay job at treating the Garifuna um, um, well enough, I mean, we're going to critique that here in a little bit, but well enough in comparison to neighboring countries for sure. So most of the activism is uh, about gender awareness because of the issues we just discussed and HIV campaigns. And a lot of those HIV campaigns are not for Belize, but they're for Honduras. There is a uh, there is an HIV epidemic um, in Honduras among the Garifuan people. And so Belizean Garifuna have also um, engaged in activist um, and awareness building campaigns around HIV. There was also another campaign um, that was uh, aimed specifically at the uh, media giant Disney. Um, good, because they suck. But anyway, um, and this was mainly for the series of films called The Pirates of the Caribbean. And this campaign was basically about like character defamation of black Caribbean peoples, um, which like painted them as like cannibals and just like, yeah. So... I can't remember the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that well, but I I, I assume that's what they're like voodoo and all that like super that's cliche. Exactly. That, I only remember because we just watched them with my daughter like over the past year or something. We've been watching all of them. Yeah. So that's the Garifuna people, and they're basically uh, insinuating to Disney like that that you're, this is how you're depicting us, like cannibal voodoo. Just that's mm. not who we are. So um, there is activism there. I don't know that Disney um, really cares, but that's what they're doing. In terms of like the Garifuna music and culture specifically, and it is the music that is like kind of carrying the day here, it is enough that UNESCO put them on the representative list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity in 2001. And again, it was the music that kind of like led to this like recognition. So I must stress that UNESCO operating, of course, under the United Nations, um, recognizes the Garifuna and their music as unique and something that must be like, it is important for the cultural heritage of humanity. Hmm. So that recognition alone is a big deal. Again, since there's such a, a tiny minority um, in the world, this is a very unique culture, right? So super important. In terms of their spirituality, again, that deserves its own episode. I do not have time to dig into the complexities of the Garifuna and their relationship with religion, both, of course, or not even just both. Um, we would have to include African. We would have to include indigenous. We would have to include Catholic. It is this just unique historical synthesis of all of these different spiritualities that inform what it means to be Garifuna, Gar I keep trying to say it, Garifuna um, spiritually. 
Um, I will say that the African part of it does lead to like a shamanistic view on the world, although there is also recognition of Catholic priests. So again, it's kind of like this unique synthesis of religions. The shamans are called bouillés, um, and there are a lot of interesting outside the Catholic Church rituals that also take place, the most famous of which, um, if any of you are ever lucky enough to go and, and visit and you're invited, is called the Dugu. It is amazing. I have not personally seen one, um, but I was told that that is something that I should do uh, before I die, is, is, is watch a Dugu ritual. Anyway, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on spirituality. We'll probably do another episode on that when I feel a little bit more comfortable in my research. Uh, I don't feel comfortable yet speaking about something I don't know about. So, okay. In terms of diversity issues, Belize is a unique amalgamation of peoples itself. It's a true melting pot. Not only do you have the Garifuna, who I just spoke about, but of course you have like Mayans, the, the, the original inhabitants of those lands and who we've talked at length about in these Zapatista episodes. You have these Mayan indigenous peoples that are there. You have Spanish colonizers. You have British colonizers. You have other Caribbean colonizers. Um, it is basically a layered of mixed heritage. We brag here in the United States that we live in a melting pot. We don't know what a melting pot looks like. That's a melting pot. Like that is a true melting pot for mm -hmm. sure. Um, there is still racial discrimination in Belize, but much less so than in the neighboring countries of like Honduras and Guatemala. Um, there is also importantly racial discrimination, not from just mestizo Belizeans, there is racial discrimination from tourists. And this is where we're going to have to start talking about tourism as exploitative in Belize, even though I myself was part of that, that process. So I have mixed emotions about, you know, mixed feelings about what happened. But tourists, especially coming from the United States, Canada, and Europe, bring with them their own racial baggage. And to be blunt, because of the socioeconomic inequality of Canada, the United States, and Europe, to be blunt, it is mostly white people traveling to Central America. And um, it is no secret how this channel feels about uh, uh, the growing white nationalist sentiment in these regions. We find it absolutely appalling and disgusting, but it must be stressed that these people are now traveling, and they are bringing their wicked racism with them where they go. So tourists that show up in Belize are showing also favoritism towards like Mestizo-owned businesses or Mestizo-owned tour companies or or just Mestizos in general in contrast to the Garifuna um, associating them with, of course, that African heritage. Any thoughts on that? God, I mean, we could do an entire episode on that, right? The racial, racial dynamics of tourists anywhere in the world, really. But like, yeah, that's a huge, huge topic. The one... Um, effect, side effect of that, that one might be considered at least pseudo positive is that it has forced both the black Creole population and the black Garifuna population to find common cause and put aside some of their, their centuries long differences. Um, and basically like recognize we're all in this together. We're, we're all, we're all racially profiled and, and denigrated together. So that mm -hmm. is the one, I, I, again, I don't even think there's, there's a possibility for like a positive of, of racial, um, exceptionalism, exceptionalism in the 21st century, but yes, like that is the one thing that we're well, when I about. talk about when I teach racism right in my intro classes and so forth I talk about how it always creates uh, all of the negatives right clearly but it always does create a sense of solidarity in both in groups and out groups right, right. and in this case it's two different out groups coming together and realizing they have common causes so we talked about like the main like industries, quote unquote, that the Garavuna can partake in in places like Belize and, and a lot of the land was taken from them and sold to Mestizo. So, so farming is not going to be as prominent. 
um, fishing is becoming uh, more and more difficult to be able to compete with, again, these large, large fishing companies with their trawlers and whatnot and so on and so forth. Moreover, fishing is a little bit more restricted there, thankfully so. As an environmentalist, it is the uh, second largest barrier reef um, in the world. It is beautiful. And yes, so for other reasons, fishing is also not the best way to make a living. And for that one, I'm actually somewhat grateful. But anyway, like, so fishing is, is, is limited. So in a place this beautiful, though, this leads me to the next conversation, tourism. Tourism is the way that a lot of people in Belize, especially, um, and to a lesser extent, Honduras, but in a growing aspect, Honduras, are going to be able to make a living for all of those Canadians, Americans, and Europeans that want to show up in a tropical paradise. Uh, they will end up attempting to cater to them. And like I said, right now, it is mestizos that are most heavily favored in those industries over the Garifuna, um, except, again, specifically in the place I went. And it is why I chose the specific place I went. Hopkins um, uh, seemed to be um, the, 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 the tourism industry seemed pretty much just Garifuna for Garifuna. So uh, that, that's my hope. That's where I'm hoping my, my, my dollars went anyway. Um, in terms of, um, neoliberalism and tourism, we have to talk about like the parasitic neoliberal like plague throughout like the Americas. And we already kind of have, again, especially when we were talking about the Zapatistas, but I found an interesting quote and it comes from an author named Bondo. She has this in, a, in a, an amazing book that I actually have not quite completed yet. It's called Land Grab and she wrote it in 2013. She basically is talking about how land is being seized by the Garifuna. Her focus is mostly Honduras rather than Belize, but my experience in Belize in 2021 uh, revealed that it's slowly taking place there too, but we'll get to that. Anyway, um, she defines neoliberalism as the political and economic strategies that presumes human well-being can be best enhanced through encouraging efficient economic markets, free trade, and strong property rights. By privatizing public services, engaging in massive governmental deregulation, and limiting the role of the state. Now, that's just kind of like a factual statement. She is clearly against neoliberalism, as the book indicates. She is trying to, like, it's it's, it's basically, um, she calls it green neoliberalism now. She even critiques, like, environmentalists as being part of, like, the neoliberal, like, monster that is just destroying indigenous cultures. But anyway, any thoughts on her kind of just like basic definition of neoliberalism? No, I think that's a really good okay. short summation. Okay. In terms of neoliberalism, um, I mean, essentially here are kind of my thoughts on neoliberalism. And this is, I'm quoting myself. You don't get much more arrogant than that, do you? Okay. So the ultimate failures of neoliberal capitalism are difficult to assess from the vantage point of citizens residing in any of the limited handful of economically dominant states. All are endowed with the basic necessities required for mere survival, and most are granted the means to attain much more. I'm going to stop there because I want to do the rest like at the end. But like that's something that I think we have to understand is it's one thing for us to armchair it here in an, a, a nice you know off home office, you know nice equipment, things along those lines. But unless we're like living it and seeing it, like quote-unquote boots on the ground it's very hard to assess like you mm -hmm. just don't get it unless you see it it's it's easy to even read that the united fruit company is like displacing people so that it can grow freaking bananas for me cheaper that i could go pick up at the at the kroger or the king supers or whatever and still that doesn't hit home unless you're like there does mm -hmm. that make sense yeah fully okay so anyway that's what we're after all right so let's talk about these two different places and their relationships with like how they're engaging with neoliberalism, and when I say two different places, two different countries, Honduras and Belize, how they're engaging with neoliberalism and what it means for the Garifuna. 
So real quickly, let's do Honduras. Uh, the Garifuna are one of nine um, nationally recognized ethnic groups in Honduras. Uh, they are the most historically oppressed based on complex notion of ethnicity and race tied to the historical construction um, of racism as well as the encomienda system that was there for so long and slave-based economies. So that was a mouthful, but long story short, the Garifuna are the most oppressed people in Honduras. Um, they face um, this idea of this weird Central American nationalism that is in uh, Honduras, that there is this notion that Honduras is rightfully now a mestizo nation since it's won its independence from Spain, um, and that Honduras must ignore its African legacy. And it does have an African le legacy. There are hundreds of thousands of Garifuna in Honduras, as well as Creoles. So it's important for us to understand that. They do qualify as indigenous under Honduran law as they technically arrived before the Republic had won its independence from Spain. Um, unfortunately, even with the national and international legal recognition as indigenous people of Honduras, cash rules everything around me, cream, get the money, dollar dollar bills, y'all. The Garifuna live on beautiful beaches. Um, they are coastal. They literally arrived on the coast, as we discussed. They live mm -hmm. on the coast. They live on beautiful beaches. And who else wants to see those beautiful beaches? Tourists. White people, yes. Mm -hmm. They want to see those beautiful beaches. Tourists. And not just white people, actually. Um, a lot of the tourism, and this was news to me, in Honduras and Belize is actually other Central American tourists. So Mexicans going to visit um, um, these beautiful places in Belize and Honduras or Nicaraguans um, or well-to-do uh, Salvadorians or Costa Ricans, etc. So a lot of the tourist is also from Central, tourism is from Central America as well. So I should call that out. All right. There is rapid Honduran growth in tourism since 2000. Honduras obviously went through a lot of destabilization throughout the 80s and 90s, thank, uh, thanks in large part to consistent United States meddling. Um, but since there's been a little bit more stability since 2000, tourism in, in Honduras has become like a hallmark of what they're about. The Honduras Tourism Institute and the Ministry of the Environment, better known as SEDA, solely exist to basically attract foreign investment to the industry. So basically an entire part of the Honduran government is to go out and like lobby for money from other countries to help uh, with the tourism industry. The complication exists in the Honduran versions of legislation that try and define whose land is in question, especially coastal land. Foreign investors, essentially, just like under NAFTA, when we talked about it in the Zapatista episode, are pushing Honduras to force land privatization throughout the country. Because once land becomes privatized, and this is part of the neoliberal monster, and it goes up for auction or for sale, who can afford it? The people that already live in it, some of which don't even use currency-based economies, or the asshole corporations that have millions of dollars that they can dump into Honduran projects and into Honduran politician pockets. Like, we already know who's going to win that mm. battle. So they push heavily for land privatization. So this is like the material hegemony of capitalism versus a Garifuna tradition. Because, again, Garifuna traditional uses of land, just like many indigenous cultures, do not recognize private ownership of land. Land is communal. You live in a community, right? Everybody kind of works together. Like it is very circular in that, in that, um, in that way. Um, so anyway, any comments on this? Nope. Okay. This led to incentives for land invasions. The reason this is important is because without anybody literally holding a piece of paper with like their name and the title and the word title on top of it in the Garifuna, Garifuna communities, um, 
exploitative companies, whether they're tourist companies or fruit companies or whatever, can like show up and just start building on land and you don't have a title, you don't have a piece of paper that says this is your land, what the fuck are you going to do? Right. So this led, and this is still a problem in Honduras to this day, this led to incentives for land invasion, intimidation, bribery, and outright violence against Garifuna communities in Honduras. Um, some Garifuna eventually even illegally sell land they could claim um, under fear that they are going to be like killed or disappeared. So um, it's clearly the intimidation of these companies, even tourist companies, is key. Now, some Garifuna in Honduras would respond. This is where the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras, better known as Ofrana, um, came into being. And then also the Ethnic Community Develop Organization. So these are two very important organizations in Honduras and throughout Central America that are working uh, to battle neoliberalism. They began by pressuring the government to honor constitutional commitment to Garifuna land, public education, consciousness wearing, political advocacy, lobbying, organizing, development, and fundraising. Until 1992, Garifuna communities possessed only titulos de ocupation. Basically, that means titles for occupation for their land. So they didn't have the actual like ownership deeds, if that makes sense. Um, in 19, and, and I guess the reason I mentioned that is because that's something that the Ethnic Community Development Organization and the Black Fraternal Organization are working on changing, like changing those from like occupation titles to ownership titles. So, okay. In 1996, 5,000 Garifuna go on the first grand peaceful march of the black people of Honduras, which is an important, like, symbolic event. And from this march, it was a peaceful march, they garnered $227,000 from the government of Honduras, and for Honduras, that's a lot of money, um, for the National Agrarian Institute, which basically secured them title to certain Garifuna lands. So they actually did win some titles um, in 1996. Unfortunately, titles only included land with actual structures on them, like houses or dwellings or whatever. Land that was used for farming or fishing or beaches just for enjoying were considered fair game for cattle ranchers, real estate speculators, palm oil companies became very popular in Honduras, and of course, uh, as I already mentioned, foreign tour foreigner tourist locales. So basically, again, if there's not a structure on it, the, the title you just earned from the government is, is null and void. It has to have a structure on it. So so people can just go again, plant a flag in the ground, just like that asshole Columbus did way back in the day and claim mine. And mm -hmm. you're, you're really not going to receive any protection for that. So what does this lead to? Um, where do we get the term um, ethnocide from? It comes from specific attacks by these corporations or by um, uh, paramilitaries on Garifuna in Honduras. So in 2014, violent evictions of the Garifuna, Garifuna were led by police to clear open land for the Hilton Hotel and its Indura Beach and Golf Resort. Let me repeat that one more time. People were violently removed at gunpoint from their homes so that, uh, to be blunt, Americans and Canadians could go to Honduras and play golf. Thoughts? <laughs> Obviously, it's atrocious. Go fuck yourself. October 2015, the Inter-American Court for Human Rights found Honduras guilty of violating collective property rights, failing to ensure judicial protection, and violating the Garifuna people's rights. Unfortunately, like many inter international organizations, this Inter-American Court is not making Honduras face any sort of, like, actual stakes for violating this. Mm -hmm. They just said, you're violating this, and Honduras is like, cool. 
and they continue to take the money. Also in 2015, it must be stressed, this is where the wildly famous activist murder took place of Berta uh, Caceres. Everyone should know about Berta if you do not. Uh, I'm going to ask Nick very nicely since he's the one that puts these up on YouTube for us to put her, uh, her bio in a link. Um, she is one of the most famous assassinations who uh, uh, of uh, an indigenous person. Um, in Central American history. She was not just fighting for indigenous rights. She was an environmentalist. She was a protectionist. She was one of the most beautiful people pr pretty much that's ever lived, and she was killed. She was killed for seeking to protect land, to protect animals, to protect people, to protect culture. She was murdered um, because she was hurting somebody's bottom line somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, on July 18th, uh, of 2020 uh, in uh, Trafuna de la Cruz. So this is just like last year, guys. Um, 12 armed, armed men showed up dressed as police officers in this village, abducted five Garifuna men they considered a problem at gunpoint. I cannot uncover any research since then of them being found to this day. The last report I saw was in October of 2020 and still these five men are just gone. Five Garifuna men just gone, and and there's no more stories that I can find after that. So I think everyone's just given up. They're just gone. Even before the abductions, children would be uh, traumatized. And I quote, this comes from an interview, uh, when they see the police, they think that they are coming to take them from their homes. So even the children before the, and this is in Honduras, this comes from Jose uh, Armando Guzman um, in America Magazine on uh, August 5th of, of, of 2020. But essentially, even before like these five men were taken, they knew like the cops meant bad, like mm -hmm. police mean bad. According to Yasina uh, Trinidad, 19 Garifuna have been murdered in Honduras since 2019 um, by the police, which people are like, well, that's nothing compared to like how many people the police murder in the United States. And that is a true <laughs> statement. Um, the United States police are, 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 are just murdering at, at unprecedented rates. That is a true statement. But Honduras and Belize are tiny countries and yeah. 19, like per, like the percentages is, 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 is different. Um, it's a very, very different percentage. Um, so yes, it must be stressed that things are going as of 2020, um, and 2021, things are going very poorly for the Garifuna in Honduras and there needs to be more awareness raising campaigns. Um, they are again, internationally recognized even by the UNESCO United Nations as absolutely crucial to human heritage and, and they're being attacked so that we can, um, you know, have some better hand soap and uh, some golf courses in Central America. It's absolutely out of control. In terms of Belize, again, where, where I was, um, they were a little bit more protected. Um, Article 3B uh, of the Constitution of Belize has this to say, whereas every person in Belize is entitled to the fundamental rights and freedoms of the individual, that is to say, the right, whatever his race, place of origin, political opinions, color, creed, or sex, but subject to respect for the rights and freedoms of others, and for the public interest to each and all of the following, namely freedom of conscience, of expression, and of assembly and association. I actually like that quote. We could probably throw that one in, mm -hmm. in one just a little bit further to the north. But anyway, so Belize is operating under the auspices that it merely having this in their constitution is doing enough to protect all peoples of Belize, Garifuna included. There is debate there. There is no separate or regulatory or legislative implementation to protect the Garifuna people or other indigenous people. Again, Belize has lots of Mayans as well, who are, uh, you know, obviously a very important indigenous group with their own rich, deep history and culture as well. There is no separate, like, protections in Belize for either of these indigenous groups. So even though it argues that because we have this in the Constitution, everybody's protected, there's nothing specific for the indigenous groups. Any thoughts? 
No, I mean, it reminds me of just many constitutions that, you know, by saying, you know, all men are created equal, well, we've covered everyone when clearly that's not the case. Right. right. Um, in 2007, Belize ratified the Convention for the Safeguarding of the Intangible Cultural Heritage, um, and the Garifuna people were recipients of this proclamation. So basically, when the international community is like, hey, you have intangible cultural heritage in your country, they're called the Garifuna, Belize is like, we do have them. <laughs> that is a true thing that we have here. Acknowledged. And, yeah, acknowledged. They acknowledged that that was a thing. Um, in 2007, though, Belize opened the uh, Galusi School, a public school in Dangriga. Of course, we already talked about Dangriga's or origins to establish and preserve the uh, Garifuna culture. So they opened the school. Unfortunately, it is the one of the poorest, poorest funded schools, publicly funded schools um, in the country. So they opened it and are not necessarily funding it very well. So it exists. But anyway... In 2013, the International Labor Organization, better known as the ILO, held its convention um, and, and in, recommended in, rec, what is it, number 169? Yes, number 100. They have lots of recommendations. When they get together, like, it's got to be, like, just layers and layers of bureaucracy. <laughs> like, just like I appreciate what they do. Like, I know what they're trying right. to do. But, like, I mean, can you just see this, just all these, like, left, like left-leaning yeah, bureaucrats no, just sure. all sitting there, like, massaging each other? Yeah, yeah, like, oh, my God, it's got to be an absolute nightmare. Right. Uh, I, 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 can you imagine it now? with COVID on a Zoom call? Oh, oh God. my God. Dude, yeah. anyway, all right. Whatever. Number 169 of their recommendations, though, in 2013, was that Belize must improve uh, the issue of discrimination and exclusion experienced by Mayan indigenous people and by people of African descent. So both of those indigenous groups. Belize, to this day, has not implemented any measures to ensure that there would be no discrimination or exclusion for those groups. Based on court appeals, though, in 2015, Belize did begin to work with the Mayan community land claims and rights and permissions to not have companies or corporations encroach on them, but not the Garifuna. And I must stress that's important because, of course, a lot of the Mayan um, um, lands are producing like cocoa still or cacao. Um, they obviously have these beautiful like tourist destinations, which are like the ruins like throughout the country and things along those lines. Um, but it does seem like, as we talked about, there is favoritism towards the Mayan population over the, in this case, African-descended population, even in Belize. Um, as of March 2015, Belize did accede to the Convention on Protection Promotion of Diversity of Cultural Expression. So, uh, let me be blunt. Is enough being done in Belize to protect the Garifuna people? Probably not. Are they being disappeared, raped, and murdered like in Honduras? No. So it is better, and it is still somewhat of a safe haven, and I do think Belize still has some room for improvement, but it is a much better situation than it is in neighboring countries like Honduras. Now, um, speaking a little bit about my experience, again, in Hopkins, which is um, uh, one of the most important cultural centers of Garifuna uh, people in the world, um, and again, it's not a huge place. I want to say the population is like three to 4,000 people at most, um, and that might even be at the peak of, quote-unquote, like a tourist season. Anyway, um, while I was there, uh, it was interesting. Like, there were... Um, on, on one end of town, there's like million dollar mansions. Um, on another end of town, there were shacks. On another end of town, there's like moderate, like middle, middle, middle class homes. Like it's just this interesting mixture of different like socioeconomic strata. There's also Garifuna owned businesses. There's some Mayan owned businesses. There's probably one or two Mestizo owned businesses. There's also colonial businesses. And when I say colonial, that is to be blunt, white people that came from Europe, Canada, the United States and opened up restaurants or tour companies or something along those lines there. I must stress that also 
like how those people enter into the community is important. Some of those people actually enter into the community and are massive helps to the community. Um, I want to give a shout out to the one that was uh, in particular uh, important to me, but I cannot for the life of me remember the name of this. Anyway, it was basically a pizza joint, but the pizza joint, she... Um, I think was originally from New Orleans or from Canada, but then moved to New Orleans and then eventually ended up um, in, uh, in, in Belize, in Hopkins. Anyway, she only employs, um, uh, you know, Garifuna people. She allows like the drummers and people to come every night and actually perform um, like light versions of like the rituals and music and punta and so on and so forth. And um, she basically allows the Garifuna to be the Garifuna um, in this place that serves tourists. And, and, from what I also understand, not only is she employing, um, she's also like contributing to the community in various other ways, a lot of charity, lots of other things. She would be considered a respective like person that came to this tropical paradise to live. On the other hand, we were also made um, aware of another place. In fact, I'll call it out right now for the one person that might end up in Belize that's listening right now. It's called Piers Place. Do not go to Piers Place. It is owned. It is German owned. Uh, they refuse to employ any locals. They refuse to even serve any Garifuna. Like, so, so it's like right there. This is a town of 3,000 people. Like you could walk it in like 10, 15 minutes. So like everybody kind of knows everybody and you would have to walk past this, this, this restaurant owned by a German dude. Um, I think operated by like a Russian woman as well. They refuse to even serve the locals. Like we're talking like 21st century segregation here. Right. Um, and, uh, we did, we went there. Um, and we had a conversation, um, with them about this and, uh, maybe I'll reveal like the, the findings of that conversation a little bit later. It was just interesting to see like basically every super cliche, um, like low key closet racial argument basically made. Like if they wanted to have a restaurant, they would just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so you see this taking place. So you see this like kind of vast, like socioeconomic, like discrepancy taking place. The million dollar homes are being built on the south end of uh, town. And yeah, you could go online right now and they're going for like a million US dollars, um, which is exorbitant for a, a nation like Belize. Um, and you can see what they're doing there is these um, houses are slowly violating protections that exist in Belize. They're building them right on the beach. And technically in Belize, there is a protection because the beach is just so beautiful that all land 60 feet back from the shore is public. You cannot close that off like in Mexico or I don't know. I'm just picking on Mexico. This is the first example in my head. You can't close it off for a specific resort or anything along those lines. That's for everybody. I actually don't think you do that in Mexico either. I think really? it might be 30 feet, but there's a foot. There's some measure oh, where you, can, you can't close it off. And what am I thinking of? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guarantee there are places that you can do that. But. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking of Costa Rica. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's definitely places where you can have your own cute little private beach mm -hmm. or whatever. So, but you're not allowed to in Belize. Well, these people are just building, just like we talked about with Honduras. They're just building there. And like, what are you going to do about it? Like, we're just right. building here. Maybe I'll throw up, not like a formalized fence, but I'll make it super inconvenient for you to access this part of the beach now. Moreover, um, there's also this thing, and, and I, 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 the reason I talk so much about music is it's not just important to the culture, but it was kind of building towards this. The music goes on kind of late at night sometimes. Like the mm -hmm. Puta music will go long and some of the rituals go on late at night. When I was there, there was actually a curfew in place because of COVID, so it, it didn't go super late. I think 10 p.m. was our uh, the, 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 the curfew, but oftentimes it does go late at night. These people in the wealthy community are now filing um, with the governments to try and get like noise restrictions placed on the, like the Garifuna people. So these these million dollar tourists or not even tourists, I, colonizers, because they're buying the land there just to have this beautiful land 
are now trying to implement their own laws for their own comfort in a community they're invading. Absolutely appalling. Yeah. Have you ever been to Malibu in California? Not since I was like a child. So oh, it reminds remember. me, the beach thing reminds me of Malibu where like, obviously multi-million dollar homes everywhere and like there's paths down to the beach that go like between the homes and stuff but they're all public beaches but the residents of malibu don't want like regular people from the public coming and going on the beach so they put up all these signs and have all this stuff like private beach and like so to deter people from like going down to the beach but it's all public like you know yeah and like i said i mean you could just see the slow erosion like i said and, and, and i was only there a few what a month month and a half ago i want to say you can kind of already see like the slow erosion beginning to really take place again it's not going to be instantaneous and i do think just because of the more laid-back culture and different like demographic of belize it's not going to lead to like mass disappearances and murders like we're seeing in honduras but you it's a slow erosion like neoliberalism is a is a disease mm-hmm. and it is it's slowly kind of like it's trying to like take the Garifuna culture and commodify it and turn it into something that's tangible and palatable, but only when I want to consume it, not when it wants to be itself and alive and free and able to express itself, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, put it in neat little boxes that are easily purchased and et cetera. Yeah. In the last episode we talked about in Alcatraz, there was that great quote we talked about, they want Native Americans to be a caricature of themselves, exactly. but we're seeing Perfect. it here as well. Like mm-hmm. even if you go to like all the tourism Belize websites written by again, a bunch of white colonizers, they're like, yeah, go experience the Garifuna culture, but they don't want like all of the other things that come with it Mm -hmm. i don't mean to like brag or something like that but like people can kind of tell and one of the reasons i guess i was given a little bit more access to um the interviews that i i i i I conducted and, and talked with people and even some of the parties that are not for tourists that i was invited to um was because i guess it's just a certain way you carry yourself when you go to these other places and how you engage and and I just, I want our listeners to kind of like, this was like real eye-opening in that regard. They flat out said that. Like, you definitely, uh, you're you're clearly probably dressed like a tourist, right? You know, you're not wearing our clothes or things along those lines. And we see when you ride the little the little bike from uh, from the resort over there, or by the resort over there. And by the way, I stayed at a resort that only hired like locals as well. And, uh, you know, whatever. If I go back, I probably won't stay at a resort now that I know the town a little bit better, but whatever. I'm like apologizing for like my, my colonial whatever, but yeah, get the idea. So anyway, but you could see that people like, again, they carry themselves a little bit differently and they show respect for the people that they're engaging with and they actually care and they're not looking to, and again, like, I forget the word they used. Um, basically turn us into like the best association I can give, but like play dolls, something that you can like just have when you want us there and then put us away when you're done and you want to go back to being rich and, and all these other, which I'm not rich, but like you, you get the idea. Like mm-hmm. people can tell. So I guess it's just kind of like that cautionary Terry. All right, we're going to close out today with that like quote on neoliberalism. And I, I think it's a good way to kind of close out because again, this is about like not just who are the Garifuna, but making sure um, to a wider audience, whoever our audience is, uh, you know, our, our four to 5,000 subscribers or the hundreds of people that may or may not listen to this one because it's a super long episode, um, whatever. This is a people, they exist, they need our awareness they need, yeah, I mean, yes. I, like I said, literally last year, five people just disappeared and nobody's doing a damn thing about it. So yeah, okay, all right. 
The ultimate failures of neoliberal capitalism are difficult to assess from the vantage point of citizens residing in any of the limited handful of economically dominant states. All are endowed with the basic necessities required for mere survival, and most are granted the means to attain much more. Idealized versions of free market economies are incubated in a general ethos and perpetuated through social educational indoctrination. Order is maintained through continued promise of material gain, while sources of potential strife are usually quietly quelled through a number of different methods. Most importantly, however, is that the comfortable populace must remain ignorant to the effect that its lifestyle has on a global scale. This necessary ignorance can either be achieved through state sponsorship or individual co-optation, as many openly choose to ignore the plight of others. As long as more can be consumed and their lifestyles are not directly compromised, there's no need to recognize that the global support system necessary to maintaining this perpetuation is oppression. Take us out. Find us online, revolutionandideology.com. If you're listening to this as a podcast, just know that we have a YouTube channel as well where we post videos of all of our episodes and other videos we make for our courses and so on. If you are watching this on YouTube, know that we also post all of our episodes as a podcast. So if you would rather listen to it as a podcast, just search in your podcast app uh, for Revolution and Ideology. Um, like this video and leave us a comment. If you're listening to it as a podcast, uh, leave us a comment there as well and a rating that really helps us to find our listeners. If you really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Huge, huge, huge shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. Um, you really inspire us to keep doing uh, what we're doing. I'm Nick. Jared. Later. <laughs>